Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We are broadcasting from the 2017 Red Hat Summit in Boston. And joining us now in our New York studio is Peter Anderson. He is the Chief Investment Officer of Fiduciary Trust. And Peter, thanks for being with us. And I, I know that it's it, it's what happens. You're based in Boston. You come to New York and, we, you know, it's like two ships crossing in the night. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so yes. thanks very much for being for being with us. Um, uh, here's Here's my question to you. Does it make any sense that you can invest in a company that's still making money and is one of the leaders in its field, Ford Motor Company, and you're going to get a 5.5% dividend, or do you want to lend your money to the U.S. government for 30 years uh, and get 3%? Well, you're you're picking two very different um, securities to examine, Pim, right? I mean, you've got... Well, I'm wondering if you could use it as an example for how we've gotten here. Like, how how is this possible? Yeah. Well, let's look at the U.S. Treasury yield, because I think that is more telling in its own way than the uh, Ford example you gave. Uh, right now, you know, when you look at the S&P 500 also, and that's up about 7% or so year to date, and then you've got the 10-year Treasury, which really has stopped tracking the anticipated growth that we all thought was going to happen post uh, Trump's announcement of his victory. So I think what's happening is we're starting to look more carefully at the prospect for growth in treasuries are reflecting that doubt that's gradually creeping into our market and forcing us to take right. a second look at the promises of the Trump policies and whether or not they'll actually come to fruition. Peter, is this one of the most boring markets you've ever dealt with? Oh, it's by far boring. I mean, we've got, if you look at the VIX, I guess you could say that that might be an indication of boredom. But uh, in contrary to that, I think that this is one of the most unprecedented markets in terms of what's happening if you want to talk on a global perspective all the uncertainty that we're living through right now and on a uh, domestic perspective so many unanswered questions totally and, and no, I, without yeah, a doubt so mm -hmm. many unanswered questions and unanswerable questions uh, you know we hear a lot about uh, a lack of conviction we uh, mm -hmm. heard that Goldman Sachs's uh, David Solomon came out yesterday on Bloomberg television was saying that the reason why trading volumes and, and revenues were down so much at Goldman Sachs relative to the expectations mm -hmm. in the first quarter was simply just because of a lack of conviction. Do you feel like you have conviction? And if so, what is your boldest bet? Okay, so here's the way we're thinking of this. Um, if you just use, say, what I would call a building block approach to U.S. equities, uh, and you assume earnings growth is going to be 7% this year, which is fairly typical, and then you add on another 2% for the dividend, that's 9% growth for the year, a 9% total return. And as you know, so we're a third through the year, so we should actually be tracking about only 3% up. But instead, the S&P is tracking north of 7%. So you've got what I would call this 4% uh, premium. And what is baked into that premium? A lot of hope that the Trump policies, in our opinion, will be uh, materialized. And if that doesn't, 
then I think that's a big concern. And you could be seeing a sell-off of anywhere from, say, 4 to 7% this year based on how these things play out. Uh, Peter Anderson, um, what kind of yield would you have to be offered if uh, the Treasury Secretary, Steven Mnuchin, was selling 100-year bonds? Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing, uh, when people are starting, it's a little bit um, challenging to present that to the general public, Pim, because it involves the daunted bond math, right? And people tend to think that, well, a 100-year bond, you know, its duration or its interest sensitivity, is that, you know, uh, four times as great as a 25-year bond? And uh, for those that have done the calculation, it doesn't turn out to be that way. So people would expect probably a much higher yield just uh, subjectively, then the math will probably prove out to be. So at the current rates, you would have to have, let me just talk in practical terms. I think for people to be interested, for the retail or non-professional investor to be interested, the yield that they have in mind would probably be not anywhere near what the yield, the market yield would present, which I would think is below easily below 5% at this point if they were to issue it right now. Uh, Let's talk about credit, corporate credit. Uh, We heard from Scott Menard from Guggenheim Partners yesterday at the Milken Conference, and he was saying uh, that he's recommending his clients steer away from U.S. credit markets, particularly the riskier segments. Mm -hmm. What's your view? Uh, I have a long history and love-hate relationship with high-yield bonds, and I am currently very supportive of them. I think uh, just in the same vein as you would think of a small-cap U.S. equity, They tend to be ring-fenced in terms of their revenues. They're more dependent upon the domestic economy, which we haven't talked at all about um, how positive we are on the domestic economy. We think that that's very consistently strong. And so if you're a high-yield borrower, you probably will be looking very good unless you're an international high-yield borrower, which lends more complexities to the calculation. But U.S. domestic small-cap companies that tend to be high-yield issuers would look very positive to us. So you're also positive on those same equities, small-cap uh, small domestic uh, companies? Depending upon uh, how their revenue segments are, Yes, because they tend to be smaller. They tend to be what I would call uh, unitary focus on one or two product lines, simpler to analyze, uh, would be somewhat insulated from the whole Brexit conundrum that we're, we are looking at for the next two years. Much simpler, strips away those unanswered questions and are much easier to analyze from a fundamental mathemat- uh, spreadsheet perspective. What about emerging markets debt? You know, uh, Emerging markets, there is a place in everybody's portfolio for it, but let's not go overboard. I mean, People recent, are. They're yeah, going overboard. They're really piling in. They really are. And I think it's uh, because of a relationship between you look at the U.S. and what's going on here, and you look at the uh, developed markets, and for some reason, people are using a logic saying, well, there aren't as many unanswered questions in emerging markets right now, so... Therefore, they look less risky. But as we know, that is not the right logic to use. I mean, uh, emerging markets are the most risky uh, second to, say, frontier markets. So while you want to have exposure, we're advocating uh, anywhere from, say, 3 to 5% in a portfolio, not double that, which is what I've been reading recently. Well, and has that changed, though, the 3 to 5%? 
No, we tend to stay fairly constant with these uh, with these asset allocations because we think um, moving or trimming or rebalancing more frequently than a year is a fool's errand because you need at least a year's of data. And right now, there is, as you mentioned, you know, is this the most boring market? No, I would say it's the most um, unstable market in terms of information. And until we get new clarity, fact-based clarity, especially in the U.S., uh, we just have to wait and see how these things are going to develop. Fact-based clarity. We all are praying for that. Peter Anderson, Chief Investment Officer and Vice President at Fiduciary Trust in Boston. But he's in New York. We're in Boston. Make sense of that. We can't. I'm Lisa Abramowitz here with Pim Fox, and we are broadcasting live from the 2017 Red Hat Summit. Broadcasting from the 2017 Red Hat Summit in Boston. I'm Pim Fox, along with Lisa Abramowitz. And, you know, we understand what the word infrastructure means when we talk about bridges or roads or even airports. But technology infrastructure that exists within corporations has also various lifespans and various histories. And here to understand, uh, help us understand how to knit these things together in a more efficient way is Joe Fitzgerald. He is the Vice President Management Business Unit for Red Hat. Joe, thanks for, for being here um, and thanks for having us. Is that a reasonable uh, analogy that I, a picture that I painted? Yes, I mean, the world started off simple. Things were physical, you could touch them, you know, they sort of stayed where you left them. And then over time they become virtual, right? Where, you know, you can have uh, many more virtual machines running on physical servers than there really are there. And then the world evolved sort of into different cloud architectures, which are even more abstracted and virtual. So it's getting very complicated. Well, Joe, um, you have a vision for automated enterprise, and this uh, is sort of uh, represented in the Ansible technology by Red Hat. And I, um, we were just talking offline about the idea that, for example, there are all these small automated parts of uh, everyday items that we use, and it, it's up to us to update our system or prevent you know, security threats and press okay and know what to press and what not to press. But this is basically a way to do that for you and have some kind of uh, intermediary to like remove anything that a human actually has to do. <laughs> yeah, so we have this vision of an automated enterprise. And the irony is that enterprises have dozens of automation tools. And if you think about automation in other areas, like your car, you have automation for cruise control or right. for you know different things that help the driver. Well, what we need to get to is the point where the thing can talk across these different silos of automation and be able to automate much higher level functions. In a car, we've hit, we've hit that with the self-driving car, which takes all these inputs, for example, and, and coordinates them in a very sophisticated way. Enterprises don't have that yet. So what has been the main blockade? Why hasn't this already been created? What's been the obstacle? So it's a couple of things. First of all, it's complexity. A lot of the automation tools are really programming languages or scripting languages which means that you have to find really smart people who are effectively developers to go write automation. And I think one of the things we see in Ansible, finally there's a human readable automation language which sort of democratizes automation. More people can do it, they can understand it, they can participate. So it really changes the whole dynamic. Can you give us an example of an industry that you see in the future that doesn't use this approach but will and will adopt it? Well, so it's interesting. So, you know, we acquired Ansible about a year and a half ago. And so, you know, Red Hat's a global company. 
So I've traveled the world talking to customers um, in many countries and in many different industries. The Ansible sort of technology uptake is viral. It's across almost every industry now, from government agencies to financial services, healthcare, manufacturing. It's stunning how many industries have self-selected that technology. And then the use cases range from traditional, I've got to roll out some physical servers, to I've got to put my Alexa application out so that I can you know, deploy my new services for uh, financial services. So if I said within the airlines, how would Ansible be used? What would they be bringing together? So what they would be using Ansible for is things like DevOps practices, where they can move their applications much faster from development to production uh, to get them online, to be able to deploy new environments so their developers can be instantly productive, um, to track and manage the, um, the process of getting effectively new business services out there. Is there a risk when we start automating the automation, when we start creating you know, systems to sort of oversee the systems? I mean, this is like the, the tech version of CDO squared. I mean, at what point, if there's, a, if there's some kind of a hitch or some kind of problem glitch uh, in, in one of these areas, will it become a, a, a catastrophe? Yeah, automation gone wrong can, can do some very you know, damaging things. I'm but going I think, back to my science fiction roots, yes, go right. on. But one of the things I think that you know, helps eliminate that is simplicity. If you've got very complex programming that has you know, one line of programming that's wrong, right, or something that wasn't considered, then the, the automation can go crazy. When you have a simpler um, automation language where people can read it, Okay, well, so, so is this simple language something like, uh, please take this system, put it with this system, make sure it's updated and safe, thanks. I mean, what would this, <laughs> like, what, yeah. What, simple, yeah? Yeah, so effectively you can put a, a recipe or, or a, um, a, a simple way of defining a system, and if you run that same recipe or that same you know, automation a thousand times, you're going to get exactly the same results a thousand times. So it makes it very predictable and reliable to be able to generate those things. So if you're deploying new systems in the cloud or you're deploying a new, you know, again, bank or airline application or healthcare application, that thing's going to be the same every time. It's going to be reliable. So you don't get those errors that people make or complexity, you know, causes. No, I, it, it's an interesting topic because it really does pull together the legacy systems, the older systems that many companies still use. Do, can you, in in your travels, what was the oldest system you came into? In did you ever go to go to a company and think, wow, I can't believe they're even running this? There are people using automation tools that are 15 plus years old. Okay, that you know deploy some of their their systems. They're afraid to touch it, right? And the companies that originally sold it to them have been acquired three times, right? And you know the original people aren't there. Um, but they don't want to change it because it's so fragile. So one of the challenges here is really getting to this newer age of automation. Any company that doesn't automate is not going to be able to keep up with all the digital transformation that they have to do. It's just not going to be possible. I, I unfortunately can relate having a really old thing, being like, just don't touch it and it'll be okay. Joe Fitzgerald, thank you so much for joining us. Joe Fitzgerald is Vice President of the Management Business Unit at Red Hat, and we are here at the 2017 Red Hat Summit in Boston talking about all things uh, cloud and open source and uh, the future of our world, frankly.
We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com lens. We're broadcasting from the 2017 Red Hat Summit in Boston. And uh, I want to cast our attention now to Puerto Rico. Uh, the uh, Commonwealth of Puerto Rico is now going to face a series of bondholder lawsuits. Uh, in addition, uh, Puerto Rico is also experiencing an outflow of people as well as uh, a real missed opportunity when it comes to uh, refinancing its debt. Here to tell us more is Michelle Kasky of Bloomberg News. Michelle, thanks for being with us. Uh, give us an update on what has happened and uh, maybe put it into the context of what it's like to be in Puerto Rico now. Well, in, in, in response to your question, what it's like to be in Puerto Rico, there's a lot of protests going on um, regarding some of the, the changes, uh, spending cuts that um, the governor is, is proposing. But what, what has happened with the lawsuits recently is a, um, a legal stay expired Monday night and last night, and that had um, safeguarded Puerto Rico from creditor lawsuits. That has lifted, so now um, investors are free to, um, to sue the Commonwealth. And what has happened is we have a suit from both um, AMBAC Financial Group, which ensures um, some of Puerto Rico's debt, and also a group of hedge funds holding senior um, sales tax bonds. Well, Michelle, and this is just the opening salvo, I mean, right, I mean, the, the deadline for when Puerto Rico was somewhat immune from litigation uh, expired at midnight. These lawsuits come today. We can only begin to imagine that this is really uh, just the tip of the iceberg, no? I would think that there would be more suits coming, and also remember there there are already existing lawsuits that had have been filed, and so again with the stay being lifted, those lawsuits can move forward. Um, maybe we might see some rulings in the next few weeks or so on those suits, and um, and of course um, one way that can one thing that Puerto Rico can, can do to stop this is the Federal Control Board could pursue uh, Title Three, which is this provision in the um, the federal um, PROMESA law, um, that rescue law for Puerto Rico, that, um, that that allows Puerto Rico to use a bankruptcy-like process to force creditors to, to take losses. Well, so why wouldn't they invoke Title III? Why would they allow these lawsuits to continue in a variety of jurisdictions, right? I mean, this won't necessarily be a controlled kind of uh, process of litigation without Title III, correct? Well, it... Yes and no. I mean, they, why they're not filing Title III so far is because, I mean, it's a very serious step. There's no going back. It's the equivalent of filing bankruptcy. And, and so Puerto Rico really wants to um, consider that heavily before they do it. Um, 
it would also turn over more control, a bit more control over to the, the Federal Oversight Board. Um, so, of course, uh, politicians on island um, would prefer that um, that they don't pursue Title III, although it may, not, it may have to be the path that they need to go down to resolve this. Um, but also in terms of, you know, one, one thing that helps out with these lawsuits is there is one judge, federal judge on the island, his last name is Judge Besosa, and he has so far has been overseeing many of these cases. So in some ways that helps corral all these different suits. Uh, Michelle, I understand that the uh, the recent demonstrations and uh, strikes uh, took place in front of uh, what's the Seaborne Airlines World Plaza building. This is where the Fiscal Control Board is located. Plus, uh, there are also the Golden Mile uh, area. How bad does the violence have to get or the protests have to get before this becomes a, a, a real political issue as much as it is a, an economic and financial issue right now? Sure. It's such a political issue. I mean, it's um, this This has happened before on Puerto Rico. Um, the the residents really do take to the streets when um, the, the politicians announce that they're going to cut back on spending and cut back on programs that help people. And we see it on um, the, the, the campuses down there as well. Um, some of the campuses get shut down and um, but it has turned um, more violent, and uh, the governor has um, spoken out about this and, and has urged people um, to protest uh, responsibly. You know, uh, what are some deadlines that we really should be focusing on? Because this has obviously been ongoing for a long time. Uh, the pressure is getting ratcheted up with this uh, stay being lifted. We know that Puerto Rico did try to offer uh, a deal to bondholders, and bondholders rejected it. Both parties seem to think uh, that they're going to fare better in court. What deadlines coming up could force Puerto Rico's hand and, and force them to uh, invoke Title III? Hmm. I would think... Um as we see over the next few weeks, if we see um, a lot more lawsuits come in, a lot more lawsuits filed, that might really push the Federal Control Board's hand. Uh, also, if there's any adverse rulings um, where Puerto Rico is unable to um, skip bond payments or is unable to shuffle around money and, and different revenue streams, then uh, that might force the Control Board to have to pursue Title III. Yeah, and it's also become a political issue here in the U.S. We know that uh, that was one of the issues with getting a budget crafted in Congress in the U.S., where people were, uh, some Republicans were saying that Democrats wanted to put in a Medicaid uh, allocation for Puerto Rico, which ended up did getting included in the bill, uh, and and uh, Republicans, some Republicans, uh, including President Trump, didn't want that. So I'm sure this will be in the news uh, going forward. And there is $70 billion of debt at stake. A lot of it is held on the island. But a lot of it is also held uh, not only by hedge funds, but also by uh, mutual funds in the U.S. that hold muni bonds. So there is a, a great deal of import on a much broader scale than just uh, this uh, Commonwealth, but in and of itself is, is becoming a humanitarian issue as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.